This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. As you know, we have been tracking crucial pieces of legislation in this year's session across a range of issues like housing, gun safety, police accountability, income inequality, and more. Our friends at Fuse Washington are tracking much of the same legislation, and so to get perspective on where some of these things stand and about how to message to help push these bills across the finish line, we check in with our friend Rainey Cohen. She is the director of the communications hub at Fuse. Rainey, hello. How are you? Hello. I am great. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me. We are so happy to have you, and I think you're uniquely uh, situated to answer and respond to some of these uh, inquiries about where these bills stand, because you follow this stuff so closely, and also we certainly want to get into the messaging of all of this. So before we dive into that, I do want to ask your thoughts generally about this year's session. So I think uh, a number of people felt that since the Democrats bucked historic trends going into this, having picked up a seat uh, in each chamber in the election, that the voters voters had handed them something of a mandate. I wonder how you think about that dynamic and in light of that, how you're thinking about this year's session? Yeah, I mean, the voters definitely handed over a mandate. And I think that we are seeing them fulfill that, especially around housing, um, protecting our reproductive freedom and addressing public safety. Um, Clear message from the voters this year that they needed to address that. Um, and, And I think that they are doing that on both sides. I think is fantastic. I think one interesting thing this year is uh, at Fuse, we try to do accountability on the opposition. And um, the other side is very quiet. I think particularly around like reproductive freedom, you would expect floor speeches that are really combative and um, kind of gross. And we aren't seeing a whole lot of that. Like We are actually we're actually like, where are the Republicans and what are they doing? Did we just build such great majorities that they are kind of just like sitting back and licking their wounds um, so that the Democrats can get good stuff done? Well, let that be a national trend then, <laughs> emanating out from uh, yeah from Washington Republicans outward. Uh, you know, you mentioned housing as as being one of the key issues. I want to start there. So we know this impacts every corner of the state. It was a top legislative priority for Governor Inslee. This is near and dear to you. You previously worked on housing issues. I'll just ask you: Why do you think that the state government decided to take on housing this year? Yeah, I think that is an excellent question. Um, I've been working on housing since 2015. And when I first like joined the movement, the conversation was really centered around Seattle and King County. Like it's a Seattle King County problem. And then it could ballooned out to like a tri County situation. And then it became the I five corridor. And I think um, our housing prices, our lack of supply, our growing population has finally put enough pressure on the rural districts that all legislators in Washington care about this now and so they are doing something about it um what you what you are seeing is a whole bunch of bills that are addressing housing supply um with the middle housing bill with adus with things like that um removing barriers for building housing unfortunately what we are not seeing is a lot of um policy bills that address affordable housing so Increase in supply is one piece of the puzzle, but if we are not like lowering costs for low-income people to get off the streets and into permanent homes, um, then we've still got another problem to address. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I think this is obviously something that advocates are going to be wanting to push in next session. But, you know, I do want to mention one of the, the bills that uh, you, you had talked about, which is the middle uh, missing middle housing bill. This is 1110. So this would raise the base density on residents, uh, residential lots to four units and to six units near transit lines. Previously, these have been zoned for just one unit. So as you say, it's a multiplier for housing stock. It passed out of the House Monday night, 75 to 21, very comfortable margin. First and foremost, what is next for this bill? I am pretty sure bill sponsor Jessica Bateman has done all of her homework. Um, you can see that with the vote count of being 74 into 75 in support. Um, it is a bipartisan agreement. They have worked this bill really, really hard. And it is our um, hope and kind of assumption that um, they've also worked with people across the chambers so that that there won't be a lot of um, changes in the Senate, that it will receive the same kind of bipartisan support as it moves through committee and um, and down to the floor. Well, obviously, this is something that we're advocating for. So how do you think we should be talking about this bill in terms of messaging? Yeah, this bill legalizes forms of housing that were previously illegal. So, I mean, that's like that's the long and short of it is is that in in places where it was illegal to build multifamily housing, it will now be legal to do so. So um, I I think about it as as. You know, if you've got your single family home lot and you sell it to a developer and they build their three or six townhomes on that same lot, you know, you're putting six families where there was one. Um, the unfortunate consequence is that this is not a bill that addresses affordability because mm. those six townhomes are still going to cost $800,000 each sure. or wherever, you know, depending. Um, so we need to be careful not to conflate affordability with the increase in housing supply because it does not automatically make homes more affordable. It makes them more available, but only to people, you know, with the incomes to go and, and buy them. I appreciate you making that distinction. Um, it's a density, ultimately, that we're, that we're talking about here. And, you know, as a result, we have seen some probably predictable pushback in some of our wealthier districts. I wonder how you think about this dynamic. You know, um, the cynical part of me is like, well, that's the wealthy being the wealthy, pushing back on the things, um, because that's the pattern we kind of see um, whenever we try to do anything that affects them. Um, I don't think that we need to speak directly to their points because they're kind of the opposition that way. And we don't want to be repeating um, their talking points or having the conversation on their terms. Because um, the fact is no one's coming for your mansion. If if you don't sell your home, like no, like no one's coming for you. And if you don't live in the distance to the transit um, that that is laid out in this bill, like this just isn't going to affect you. Well, you know, speaking of uh, wealth issues, let's talk next about the wealth tax. This is 5486. This was introduced by now Senator Noelle Frame. She introduced it when she was representative. It would impose a 1% tax on financial assets over $250 million. So this would impact 0.01% of Washington's residents, about 700 people. Uh, you just attended the public hearing in the Senate Ways and Means Committee on this. What is the latest you can tell us on this bill? Yeah. So um, the bill had a hearing in House Finance in February. And last night it had a hearing on the Senate side. And um, 
there is not a ton of opposition on this bill. It is constitutional. It is implementable. The Department of Revenue says that we can do it. And um, it's it's functions like a property tax. So the same way that I pay taxes on my house every year based on its assessed value, that's where my wealth lives, is in my home. Wealthy people, their tool for building wealth is in this financial property, mostly in corporate stocks. I think 90% of what applies in this bill is corporate stocks, which are valued on a daily basis on the stock market. So a if you have in excess of $250 million of financial property, you'll get a 1% tax on that. And so it functions the same way that the property tax does, uh, which is what makes it constitutional. You know, you and, and first and foremost, thank you for all that. I, I heard uh, Senator Frame speak about some of these issues as well. It all seems straightforward on its face. You know, it's also my understanding that 70 percent of state residents support this, including 48 percent of Republicans. So yeah. given its popularity, given that it would impact so few people, I will just mention, and I don't think I have to ultimately, given that it's been reintroduced, but it did not pass the last time uh, it came up. So why has this been so hard politically, do you think? Um, I mean, to the point when we were talking about housing, um, the wealthy have a lot of power to push back. And um, this policy has gone through a few changes since it was first introduced three years ago. Um, Senator Frame has been doing a lot of work to, especially with the Department of Revenue, to make sure that it is implementable. Um, but there is, it's a, it's a new idea. There isn't a wealth tax that exists at the state level or at the national level that operates in this way, and that makes people skeptical. So we we just have to do the work of proving that it'll work. The other piece is that we have joined with seven other states around the country to introduce similar kinds of wealth taxes all at the same time because it's not happening at the federal level. So there is there is this new national pressure and a new national conversation around this issue. So as it gets socialized um, at the national level, but also here at the state level, I think we bring more people on board the more they understand it. So you're talking about working uh, across states, uh, and that uh, brings to mind one of the key points that the opposition makes is that the wealth tax would cause wealthy residents to head to other states. I don't believe the numbers bear this out, but so how do we rebut this? There are several research papers that have studied this um, that have proven that interstate migration among wealthy people or even non-wealthy people just is not that high. People... Uh, the wealthy have, just like us, their families are here, they live here, maybe they grew up here, their businesses are here, their employees are here, they have roots here. None of us really make a decision because one law changes or because one tax is implemented that we are going to uproot and move everything to a new state. So that's number one. Number two, there are studies that prove that when you um, fully fund your communities, you have great schools, good amenities, um, thriving community, everyone's housed, um, everyone has access to services. That is the place where entrepreneurs invest their time, their money, they build their wealth, like they grow their businesses here. Um, and so if we do something like the wealth tax and plow the money back into our state and make this the place where people want to come and grow their businesses, then even if a billionaire moves away, we are attracting new wealth that will grow here. You're touching on this already, but where would this would the revenue from this tax go? 
So it is evenly divided across uh, four buckets. So first is the housing trust fund, which builds specifically affordable housing for low-income folks. It also um, funds some down payment assistance programs for low-income first-time home buyers. So that's number one. Number two is the education legacy account. So funding our K through 12 schools. Um, then we have two new accounts. One is a disability services account that will be created to fund disability services. Um, and then lastly, a bucket for tax credits for working families. So money that will go straight to people on low incomes through future programs. It actually takes us back to the earlier part of our conversation, at least in, in part, uh, about how we would create a fund for affordable housing, which, as you know, and, and most people watching listening know, we desperately need. I want to talk next about uh, HB 1240. This is the assault weapons ban. So this passed out of the House on Wednesday. We recently had Renee Hopkins on. She is the head of the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. And she said that she feels that the politics on guns is actually starting to shift in this country. I'll just ask you, do, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think it is because our federal government is finally having open and honest conversations about it as well. President Biden is out there talking about banning assault weapons. And when the news media picks that up, we can have conversations here at the state level as well. I think another factor is um, events like Uvalde are happening like live on social media. It's not just on cable news anymore with, with helicopters flying around and showing, you know, yellow tape. Um, people are having real interactive conversations, reactions, you know, dev devastating reactions, but it is more in our face. We cannot ignore it. And we can agree that you can still protect yourself and keep your second amendment right without needing a military-style assault weapon. Yep, absolutely well put. So what needs to happen next with this bill? Um, it's interesting because this bill has been sitting in the House for several years and has not moved. And the Senate hasn't really had a conversation about it yet. We haven't seen it um, go through a Senate committee. Um, but I think given the um, voter support for an assault weapons ban, given that the Senate did pass a bill that holds manufacturers accountable on the assault weapons that they make, um, I think we've got a good shot to get this bill through the Senate as well. Um, and we'll just have to wait and see. I really think of this as a messaging issue, uh, and I think it's it's one that needs to be, and, and you're already talking about this in terms of the way that things have been shifting in terms of public perception, but just very specifically, how do you think that we message? What are some of the things that we need to be talking about and saying about this assault weapons ban? Yeah, I think it's really tricky, um, and it depends on who you're talking to and where you're talking about it, but we're talking about banning weapons that are made for the military we do not need these weapons in our homes it is still possible to protect yourself just as well without having military style assault weapons and you know our kids are in their schools whether they've experienced a, a um, active shooter or not doing these drills like our kids are scared to go to school we should be able to go to school go to the mall go to a movie theater without fear of a gunman opening fire with 
this type of a weapon. And the fact is that these mass shootings are happening with these military style assault weapons. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely undeniable. They have no place on our streets. I, I want to talk before I let you go about some of the bills that didn't make it that I know that Fuse is tracking. There are a couple that uh, Indivisible is tracking as well. And to talk a little bit about how we might push for these in next session. So the first is 1592. I know that this is something that uh, is, is important to Fuse. This would allow for ranked choice voting in presidential primaries. So Washington is a reliably blue state in presidential primaries. So talk about why this matters. This matters because um, we cut through voter cynicism by letting folks know or, or by, by proving to people that their vote matters. And right now, our presidential primaries, especially when they're really crowded, um, and our mail-in voting system can make it so that you send in your vote and a candidate drops out before the actual election day tally. It happened to me in the last presidential primary. I voted for a candidate, sent it right in, right when my ballot arrived. I'm a good, like, vote right away person. Um, and my candidate dropped out before election day. And if I had had the opportunity for a second choice, I would know that my voice was being heard. But instead, my ballot was just thrown out. And that's really frustrating. There are other blue states and blue cities that are using ranked choice voting and they are doing it successfully so this is a this is a place where we do have models to look to um and so it's a little frustrating that our legislators don't seem to be jumping on board just yet just yet so what do you think needs to happen to get this reintroduced next session i think during the interim we need to do more education with our legislators about why it works, why it's important, who's included, um, and and the difference that it could make just in in engaging a citizenry that will participate in our system. I also want to talk about 1045. So this was the guaranteed basic income uh, bill. This would create the, the program for the state. Now, we watched a pilot program of this in Tacoma. Just very briefly, can you tell us uh, what you learned about that uh, pilot program there? Yeah, the pilot program, um, I believe, was 110 people in Tacoma who received $500 a month for a year. And there's no strings attached to this money um, other than they met a particular income threshold in order to receive it. But they could pay a bill, buy some groceries, fix their car, whatever they wanted to do. And um, it was it's actually lifting people out of poverty. It is um, creating a sense of um, comfort and stability and stress level, like mental health levels are are stabilizing. It's the benefits were really, really great in Tacoma. Um, we all experienced a similar thing during the pandemic when we received um, our stimulus checks, right? That was no strings attached kind of money. Lower income folks got the child tax credit, no strings attached kind of money. Um, and children were lifted out of poverty at enormous rates during with the child tax credit. So the guaranteed basic income pilot program at the state level is intending to work the same way. And it's important to understand that this is not universal basic income. Right. That is when everyone gets a check, no matter what your income level is. The GBI bill um, is targeted to an income threshold that and would um, give you a monthly payment equal to to a sorry equal to the rent of a two bedroom in your area. 
So understanding that um, cost of living changes wherever you are around the state, this, um, the income that you would get from the GBI would fluctuate depending on where you live. You know, you you brought up a couple of examples of how this ultimately has already worked for us. And yet this is a politically fraught issue. We know the arguments. I won't repeat them. But I would just say there's so many practical reasons for creating a guaranteed basic income. And you're already driving at this anyway. But I was wondering, can, can you just tell us a little bit more about how you would like to hear us messaging on this this issue? Yeah, I think we need to be centering the people who are the most impacted. And this can sit inside of the balancing the tax code conversation as well. We know that our lowest income people are paying the highest percentage of their income in taxes. And one way that we can help lift people um, out of that and even that out is by supplementing them in this tax credit kind of way. We have an example with the Working Families Tax Credit. GBI is a different program, but it functionally serves the same type of folks. And if we are using something like the wealth tax to fund a program like GBI, then we are evening the scales. And the wealthiest among us are finally contributing what they owe our communities. And our communities get to benefit when people aren't sitting in poverty, stressed out about how they're going to pay their bills or meet their basic needs. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, in my mind, I see Nick Hanauer nodding along uh, to some of the things that you said. <laughs> so uh, finally, before I let you go, one last bill that I would like to discuss that did not pass in this session was 1095. This would create unemployment insurance for immigrant workers. Yeah. Talk about why this is so important, so necessary. Yeah. So th- this is admittedly a new issue for me. I just learned this year that if you are an immigrant and undocumented and working in our economy, getting your paycheck, paying your taxes, you you are not eligible for unemployment insurance. And so if you suddenly lose your job, you don't get to claim unemployment, even though you have been doing the same work alongside the rest of us paying taxes the same way the rest of us do. Um, I know that if I suddenly lose my job, I have unemployment insurance to count on. And there is a whole swath of people who live and work and pay taxes in Washington who do not have access to that benefit. Similar we need to, to make that right. Absolutely. Uh, and similar to the guaranteed basic income bill, this is a very heavy lift politically. How do we talk about this? It's the same exact thing as GBI in terms of talking about it as part of balancing the tax code. The inequities exist because our tax structure is working in this way. And giving unemployment insurance to immigrants is another way that we can help even the scales and keep people out of poverty. So because it's benefit that we should all get as people who are working. Well, Rainy Cohen, uh, as always, I, I appreciate you taking the time, my friend, and for your uh, extraordinary insights and also your hard work. Um, you do such extraordinary work at Fuse Washington. We appreciate you. And uh, thanks for coming by and uh, come back soon. Of course. Anytime. Thank you. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to Facebook.com slash Indivisible Podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.